Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. The Contrarians is brought to you by Smarks Like Us Clothing and Avnio Films. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter at JamesAlexMattis and at Avnio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Yes, this is the main theme from Star Wars Episode 3. Why, you might ask? It's simple. It's the best film in the franchise. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians podcast. We love what you hate and hate what you love. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I just saw one of the best movies I've seen in a long time. I can't wait to talk about it. This was your first time seeing this uh, modern masterpiece, we can call it. Yes, but let me, let me read something first. Paul Blart, Mole Cop, is directed by Steve Carr a man who knows how to put a camera in front of things, if little else, and written, sort of, by Nick Bouquet and Mr. Kevin James. That's Nathan Lee from New York Times, and uh, let me tell you, he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. Paul Blart, Mold Cop, is an awesome movie, and I think it's very, very uh, appropriate that we're doing this episode when... You know, the trailer for the sequel is playing in most major releases right now. We didn't really mean to time it that way, but I think it's fitting that it just turned out to be that way. That's just destiny. That's how it works. That, that is how destiny works. As here on The Contrarians today, we are visiting Paul Blart Mall Cop, the smash hit from 2009 starring Kevin James. Julio, again, this was your first time seeing it, and just first impressions before we delve into anything. It's funny. I knew what to expect. At the same time, I didn't know how to expect. You know, it's so easy to just not get it right when you're pairing something, you know, an idea that everybody would have. Like, you know, it's like, oh, let's make a funny Die Hard, and you'd be like, okay, well, anything I come up with would be funnier than, you know, whatever the movie turns out to be. That's not the case here. I can tell you, I cannot think of anything funnier than what the filmmakers came up with here. An overweight mall cop that has to foil the plans of these uh, really awesome villains that we meet in the film. That's just these uh, new age villains, the, yes. the, the likes of which you haven't really seen before in any Never action. Never seen a different any movie before. It, it's it's pretty exciting. But yeah, you know, I knew what the plot was, but I was not ready. I think for the depth, like the complexity of the characters, like really. I knew there was action coming, but I was I welcomed the build-up to the action. That was not something I expected. Right away, the film throws kind of a swerve at you because you think you're getting a mall cop like the title entails. But we start off at a New Jersey State Police Academy recruitment camp. We are immediately introduced to our main character, Paul Blart, as he's there. He's really try- trying to make it onto the New Jersey force. The drill instructor at the camp, played by Boss Rutten, legendary MMA fighter and longtime friend of Kevin James. And it looks like our buddy Paul Blart's going to do it until the very end, the last mile. He's, he's doing doing great and then you know the, the big bad hypoglycemia rears its head not, not the last time in the film this will kick in no, no 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 of course not but you know just from the beginning you know that this this movie knows it knows life I mean hypoglycemia is not something they came up with it's no. it's a real disease it's a real condition and they treat it seriously in the movie I mean it has serious consequences it's not something he shrugs off kind of a throwback to a few weeks ago when we did the family stone this is a real life situation exactly that's really where you can get the most comedy, you know, disease. If you can, if you can triumph over disease, and I'm sorry, spoilers, but that's Paul eventually triumphs, triumphs over uh, his disease and all his, all the adversity he's up against. Yeah, that's funny. When yeah. it happens, it makes you laugh. But it doesn't hurt that it's a disease that makes you fall asleep, like, on command. That's comedy gold. Exactly. I mean, come on, you can never go wrong with an overweight guy 
randomly fall falling asleep. Random fall, yeah, at the most inappropriate times. So. Bob Saget made a career off of this. <laughs> it's later then we see Paul at home having dinner with his daughter and his mother. His daughter is an obese Hispanic woman who kind of catches you off guard right away, but it lets you know that you're not there for the movie you were expecting. It's kind of shaking things up right off the bat. I wouldn't call her a woman yet. I think she's a woman in the sequel. We saw the trailer right before recording this. Yes. <laughs> You know, it's been like how many years since? <laughs> but they, they've aged. I would say, I'd be like, I'm calling Paul overweight. I think his daughter's not even overweight. She's just chubby. Okay. A but portly Hispanic girl. Yes. Playing I think his daughter. If you'd gotten a skinny Hispanic girl to play the part, then you wouldn't buy it. That's, Fair enough. Uh, I mean, especially because they live with Paul's mom and she feeds them well. Very but, well. Yeah, she's just offering pie. You get the impression pie yeah. comes at the end of every meal. Yes. Big slices too. Like she gives him like half a pie, mm-hmm. just so he can lick his wounds and lick the plate. A healthy American family. Paul's daughter and mother. All they want for him is to have someone to be with. And we find out pretty quickly the mother of the daughter and Paul's original wife was an immigrant who married Paul just for a green card and then took off as soon as he got it, which that is happens the, to the best of us. Yeah, it's the, I mean it's like a, a really serious situation that a lot of Americans have to deal with. You know, they think they're marrying for love, and then it turns out they're being taken advantage of by those those gosh darn immigrants. And, you know, I'm allowed to say that because I'm one of them. You are. Yeah. So You've gone through the proper channels. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't marry a, uh, a security guard, guard officer. If I did, I definitely would stay with him and raise our child together. I wouldn't just like just, not just let him eat pie him. after every meal every night. Yeah, and, yeah. You'd see to it that they had a healthy upbringing. Right. And the daughter and mother's attempt for Paul to get better and find someone. They signed him up for PerfectMatch.com, which is kind of like Match.com, but not quite. Because it's more perfect then. It's perfect. You can you can tell you know in that sequence that Paul is really not much of a ladies man. He's he's a man that's focused on his job and mm-hmm. everything else is kind of falling the wayside because he's focused on being the best security guard he can be. That's definitely overtaken his life. I, you know, I mean, it's relatable. I think that uh, many of us sometimes hide from the pain that that, that life is bestowing upon us. By just focusing on our work, mm-hmm. you know, if, if even if you suck at everything else, but you're good at your job, then at least you have a way of like surviving. So I think that's that's what happens to Paul. He's he's actually a really good security guard that just happens to be you know overweight and lonely. And especially the the time frame of everything, we found out that Black Friday is coming up at his job too, and he is understandably so just dead focused. He works at a mall for crying out loud. He's I mean. taking it he's taking it way more seriously than anybody else, and, and he should. As someone who's worked in retail before and never took it seriously, I, w- I wish I had the admiration he does for his job to take it that seriously. I, he cares. He's in a good mood the entire time, and I really, I, I looked at it, and I was like, I would have lost it a long time ago. Hmm. I was, I mean, I'm sorry, Alex, but I was looking, I was thinking back, you know, after we're done with the movie, I was trying to figure out, like, why it had resonated with me so much. And it's because, really, that is a tale of the retail worker. And, you know, we've both been there. Mm-hmm. And we know what it is when Black Friday comes along. And we know what it is when you have to deal with assholes like the, the old guy that won't stop him even though he tries to stop him. It's You know, he gets no respect even though he's doing a great job. And that I think that resonates with a lot of people. And, and that's why the movie was a hit. Right away, we get the impression of his blue-collar work ethic. When he just rides the Segway to work, the Segway that he's assigned at work, he rides it all the way, too. He takes pride in his job and also enough pride in his community to not drive some gas-guzzling car around. He's That's right. And, and yet, like I said, no respect. That just makes you really, really hunger for that moment where he's going to be recognized as the great person he is. Mm-hmm. 
So that's that's good. good great build-up. That will go on for a while. Paul arrives to work, and it's clear that none of his co-workers, like we were just saying, take it as seriously as he does, but he takes the job very seriously, and that pays off not only in his work ethic, but obviously throughout the course of this tale that we're going down. It's at this point in the film we're introduced to the love interest in the movie, played by uh, Jamma Mays. Amy, who is a kiosk girl who works at a wig extensions kiosk. Yep. Quite lovely. Jamma... Jamma Mays. That is, I'd never seen anything before, but I would dub her the more accessible Anna Ferris. Yes. Yeah, I, I, that's the other thing I was thinking throughout the movie. This movie is the movie of Servant Report wishes it was. It really, like, nails it. Whereas, like, Servant Report became self-indulgent and, like, you know, tried to get a little too artsy-fartsy for American audiences. This one gets it. You, you just want a very simple romance without any sort of date rape drama thrown in between. Observer uh, Report really tried to channel old boy and tried really hard to. I think Paul Blart Mall Cop does a better job of channeling old boy without even trying at all. Yeah, it's effortless. The influences, the continuous shots, I think it's it's a beautiful film, but we'll get to that yeah, shortly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, Miss Mays, we're introduced to Amy, the love interest, and sparks fly immediately when she locks eyes with Paul Blart. He has a brief run-in with her, and things are awkward, but as they always are in your first encounter with your with a true love. Listen, there's a reason why they call it a meet-cute. <laughs> It has to be cute, and there's nothing cuter than a guy on a Segway running into a van when he's looking at you. When he finally talks to you, some other guy comes in and makes fun of him for being fat. You have so to have a story to tell. That is, I mean, come on, you can't just hand everything over to him without him fighting for it. The same day that he, he meets his potential love, Paul Blart's introduced to his potential new protege in Vex Sims, the new guy on the job, played by uh, Kira O'Donnell of Wedding Crashers fame. I'm not going to remember his name, but I will call him the gay song from Wayne Crashers. And now you know who I am talking about. Exactly. Right away. You got a face yeah. to that picture right away. The first assignment he takes them on, he, they go to Victoria's Secret where there's a disagreement between two women arguing over, I believe it was a bra. It doesn't really matter because all it ends up is just comic genius when this overweight, portly woman gets into a fist fight with Paul Blart and Hilarious. Just, just manhandles him. Kevin James gets his ass kicked and... You know, later he will say it's because he won't hit a, a, a woman. And I guess he, you know, he sticks to that through the, the movie. But I didn't know what to laugh harder at. You know, uh, like the fight or the fact that he kept calling for backup. And, you know, the gay song from Wayne Crashers was just like staring at the whole thing happen. Or the fact that the girl behind the counter of Victoria's Secret was just not supporting him. It's just, it's just, and it hits such a high point of comedy so early in the movie because we're only like maybe 20 minutes in. It sets the, the bar very high. But let me tell you, again, spoiler alert, they clear it. It gets better. After this, uh, Paul's obviously had a pretty hard day. He's able to come back around, though, to Amy just so quickly, and they kind of have a, a fun back and forth, and offers to give her a ride to her car on his Segway, and we get this pretty awesome slow-mo montage, and just, it, it's clear we're, we're dealing with the true love story here. Yeah, and that's why you have the meet cute. I mean, without the meet cute, this thing doesn't work, but now, of course, you've had them be awkward around each other, and now you have them just be perfect for each other in that Segway, you know? It's just magic in slow-mo as he drives her out to, to her car. It's inspiring, I think. Despite the fact that he takes her out to her car outside the mall, we end up back inside the mall at uh, American Joe's Bar, one of the establishments where I guess a lot of the employees go to hang out afterwards, I guess. I think it's a very sly critique of uh, the consumer mentality, you know, playing in America. You know, we're like, no matter where you go, no matter what plans you, you make, you end up at the mall. Uh, you know, that's just like everything is connected there. Okay. So Paul shows up after Amy invites him. Obviously, he's he's not been there before. He's not hip to the scene. He's just kind of hanging out with all the locals and trying to put the moves on Amy when, I guess... 
the first antagonist of the film, really, Stuart rears his head, played by Steve Ranazizi, and he he's kind of a dickhead. Yeah, he's the guy that made fun of Paul earlier, you know, basically making fun of the fact that he's overweight. Yeah, he's a, he's a real dick. To be fair, the real enemy in this scene is alcohol. I really appreciated that they did not shy away from showing the horrible consequences of drinking without supervision. Mm-hmm. You know, Paul made it clear that he never drinks, and then he drinks and... Accidentally. Denied, denied. Accidentally, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it just goes... It preserves his her- heroic mentality that he never intentionally right. ingests any alcohol. But it's then just... once he's drunk, it's just, there's, there's no saving that night. It's pretty bad, as it should be. You know, I mean, I think that some people are not meant to drink. The large uh, adolescent-based audience of this film I think could take a lot of notes from how big of an asshole alcohol can turn you into yes exactly and and you know that's the thing because by now I mean we've, we're like 30 minutes into the movie and we've established that Paul is like a stand up guy mm-hmm. you know yeah he doesn't drink he doesn't even own a cell phone you know he's just like an old fashioned like really a man's man and Amy's kind of feeling up until this point but again kids take notes alcohol just turns you into a big creeper because she's just repulsed at what she sees when he gets drunk and he ends up trying to tear his clothes off and falls through a window and turns out he gets a tattoo it's just a big mess I yeah think. i mean don't get us wrong it is funny because it's kevin james so mm-hmm. anything he does is funny but it's it's still hard to watch it's just funny and like you know that awkward uncomfortable uh, yeah. comedy kind of way so it is Black Friday, and Paul recovers pretty well. He doesn't seem too hungover. He is highly apologetic to Amy, though, and just obviously feels like shit for what he had done the night before. He doesn't have too much time to feel bad, though, as a heist goes down on the mall. This is this is where we, like, the movie really, really kicks into high gear. I mean, right now we're, we're doing fine, but this is where they deploy their high-concept skateboarders and bikers take over the mall. This is all happening gradually. As it turns out, the mall is a lot bigger than we had originally uh, understood to be. Paul's kind of doing his rounds and everything, and while this heist is going down, still there's sections of the mall that aren't aware of it, so the arcade owner asks Paul to shut down the arcade for him, and Paul goes in there, I guess, slightly hungover, a bit down in his luck, and just gets himself caught up in a game of rock band, as you do. Arguably the best sequence in a movie that's full of amazing sequences, but I'm sorry, you will never listen to Detroit Rock City again without picturing Kevin James just totally shredding in the most amazing way. It's it's, it's really cool. He's he's rocking to Kiss, intercut with like you know the gang taking over the mall, and it's an amazing sequence. And I say this, I I guess I'm biased because I like rock band and I've, I've played a share of like songs where I pictured that I'm a security officer. As you do. Let loose. But yeah, this is this was really good. On the other side of the mall, there's a bank located inside there. We've got Steve Ranazizi and Amy's in there. And all the characters we've come to know. And Vec, the new guy's in there as well. When the thugs and hooligans come in to take over. And the first shocking realization of the film is that Vec is in on the mall. Huge twist. You did not see that coming. No. You, you're used to this guy playing pretty harmless people. And then suddenly he becomes a mastermind. And let me tell you, he relishes this role. You can tell. He was like, I don't know when it's going to be the next time I get a chance to play the main bad guy in the movie. So he gives it everything he's got. And what he's got is pretty impressive. He's going for it, man. Yeah, he he steals the movie from Kevin James at times. And that's not an easy feat. You can tell that he, he really is chomping it to, to like, you know, show us his acting chops. So he's got this whole squadron of BMXers and skateboarders that are just taking over the mall. At this point, Kevin James has wrapped up his set and is just kind of wandering around and not really sure. He didn't realize it was closing time already. 
He's not really sure where to go. It's worth pointing out at this point, as we mentioned earlier, Paul Blart doesn't carry a cell phone on him. But in an attempt to uh, help modernize him, one of the local vendors at the mall gave him his daughter's phone that he took to ground her. So just kind of gave him a little temporary thing. Yeah, it, he mentions when he gives him the phone that it's, it's his way of punishing his daughter because she's always texting and always getting creepy phone calls from her ex. The way they deal with the ex calling, I mean, it's... it's it's only a few scenes, but I really enjoy how they turned the whole uh, Die Hard thing on its head. You know, where it's like you had Bruce Willis talking to the guy from Family Matters, now it's Kevin James talking to this. You could call him a stereotypical Indian boy, but I think that. Bahood. Bahood. But yeah. you know what? Sometimes stereotypes are funny. And you're just going to have to deal it's with that. It's this classic mix-up situation we have where he calls and Blart answers the phone, so he automatically assumes it's the new dating his girlfriend. But over time and over the course of the movie, as we'll see, they develop this friendship. Yeah, and I'm sorry, but if you laughed at the at the Indian teenager, then you can't complain about it being stereotyped. I'm sorry, that's not how it works. You know, you laugh, so mission accomplished. Vec has all his henchmen in the bank with him, and he's explaining that there's over 200 stores in the small, and he's wanting to get the credit lines for all of them. And we find out that there's apparently $30 million in this mall. There's a lot of money. I mean, it is Black Friday. It is. But I, I really admire their plan and you know, just like their ambition because really, as, as you know, somebody mentioned when we were watching it, it's like, you know, they could have just robbed the bank. Mm -hmm. But no, they're going for... I was about to say, it's, in, it's incredible that they are overlooking the fact that they're inside of a bank. Yeah, but these guys, I think they're, they're on a different level. They don't even use their guns when they're going after Poblar. That's just like kind of villains they are. They're just overconfident. They know that we got this. Why that is extreme hubris. Yeah. I mean, they, they all carry guns, and I think there's about six gunshots fired in the entire movie. You know what they say about extreme hubris? What's that? It, it comes before the fall. So, you know, that's just the movies illustrating that point very well. To this point, the, the cops, the local PD, come in to negotiate the situation. Sergeant Howard, the leader of the police, played by Happy Madison regular Adam Ferrara. They want to get Blart out of there because Blart has communications with Chief Brooks, played by Paul Jennery, and they try to get him out. And he they, comes they out. almost do. They do. They, but, you know, then that's when Paul Blart shows It's like shows what Air he's Force One when <laughs> it touches the ground, and but it takes right back off. Exactly. He He's out of the mall pretty much, and then he sees Amy's car, mm -hmm. so he figures out that she's one of the hostages. So that's what a real man would do, what any man that's, like, sworn an oath to protect would he do. He takes his Segway and turns it right back around. He goes back into the lion's den. Yeah. Good for him. I mean, if you, for some... Miraculous reason we're not on his side by then, fucking 50 minutes into the movie. Now you are, because he really did something completely selfless and brave. It's at this point we go back to the bank, and Vec and his henchmen are taking all the cell phones from everyone they have hostage, all the regulars in the mall. And Amy has the cool and resolve just to look him straight in the eye and say, I don't have a cell phone. And it's so convincing they believe her. That's a girl that deserves Paul Blart. It's like a there. Jedi mind trick right there, man. And Blart was fortunate enough to remember in a brief passing scene earlier in the movie, when she gave him her phone number, he just remembered it from memory. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that, see, you're letting the movie trick you into thinking that Paul Blart is an idiot. Mm -hmm. Of course he would remember. The guy's like, he's he's awesome. He would remember the number. So he texts Pahood, 
trying to help because Pahoot has the GPS thing on his phone. So yes, yeah, so he's kind of a creepy guy. So he's uh, he got the GPS access to the uh, the previous owner of the phone. Like you know, he's been tracking her through GPS. I'll take this flaw. I'll I'll accept it. You know, the movie has kind of like a not not a very good grasp on technology. <laughs> I'm not sure that he can monitor someone else's phone. Although maybe he's like a super hacker, and we just don't know. He could be. He could be like Justin Long in uh, Live Free or Die Hard. Another classic. Another classic. That but that's here nor there. Yeah. So yeah, he's trying to locate exactly where they're at the mall. It's at this point then he just starts clearing out the bad guys because he realizes to get to where he needs to go, he's going to have to fight through this army. And we get it in the most comically and, I guess, brilliant exciting. ways possible. Exciting, yeah. Yeah, it is exciting. I was on the edge of my seat. The first half of the movie when you're just getting to know Paul Blart, that is great. That is, but, you know, it's not exciting. It's just, like, very gripping psychologically, but not as in, like, nobody's going to get killed. But then, once the action starts happening, and you have Paul Blart versus, like, I don't know, 12 bikers and skateboarders, then I was just, I was biting my nails. It was, it was... It's at this point you realize, too, after he turns around and gets back in the mall, it's his land, and they're going to have to take it over his dead body. You can see his body language change, and, you know, his eyes harden. Because he knows that he's gonna he's gonna get rough. Well, calm your excitement, Julio, because I know your boy shows up at this point in the movie. The SWAT, the New Jersey SWAT, shows up as Commander James Kent, played by your man Bobby Cannavale, shows up and he just he doesn't have many lines, but he just he's he clearly to, there to wreck shit. Yeah, he needs to show up. All he does is show up, and then you're like, wow. Uh, just when I thought the movie couldn't get any cooler, it's almost as if. They had, like, the filmmakers had a little moment of self-doubt, and they're like, okay, this is a kind of a bit role, but but how about we just do some stunt casting just to, like, make sure that the audience, we don't lose them, and they get Bobby Cannavale in them. It's a home run. A man who would go on to be in a film that was nominated for Best Picture. That's right. Lou Jasmine, if you, for those of you who are not versed in the Oscar ways. Someone who was in this movie was nominated for an Oscar. Give that a second. Yes. He's not the last person to show up, though, as Paul Blart's daughter shows up to the mall. And for as heavily guarded and protected as this mall that's currently under siege is, and you would think was, she seems to get in with no real strife. But, but I think that's... Only because she's Paul Blart's daughter. Exactly, she, takes after she the says it in the yeah. movie. She's like, "I'm a Blart." <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, that's that's like Batman when he says, "I'm Batman." That explains everything. You know, she's a Blart. Of yeah. course, she got in. We've talked about the scene before in Dark Knight Rises where the bat symbol is set on flames on the Gotham Bridge. Yeah, you're like, how did he like have time? But uh, have if time the movie it? has you by that point, you're not going to question Right, and things. the movie more than had me. The movie was fulfilling I, every I expectation I ever had. Unfortunately, she's able to finesse her way into the building, but she's immediately taken captive. Well, she's a blarb, but she's not an adult blarb. Yeah. I mean, Paul has had training. Daughter is just, she just had the genes. Dropped her guard temporarily. Meanwhile, Paul's just, he realizes this is going to take everything he has he just starts ransacking the mall for all the supplies he needs and in the process gets a full black uniform and looks pretty swank it's a physical transformation it's almost like kevin james lost weight he gets on the pa for the mall just goes to call out vec and to this point the hyperglycemia kicks back in and like this is like a real cliffhanger in the film because you think it's it's all coming crashing down you think he's done he passes out for from lack of sugar and there is a used uh, lollipop that's been left on the ground. The saving grace of the film is his lazy counterparts, his lazy co-workers that leave this candy behind. Fortune smiles uh, on the brave sometimes, and I think that Poplar's come a long way throughout the movie on his own, so it's about time he caught a break. So, yeah, 
he gets a lollipop sticking in his mouth, and then he's it's he's back to work. This leads to a, a big showdown between Vex Men and Blart in the Rainforest Cafe. He calls him out, and he waits for him, and, you know, they're the idiots to doubt him, because he knows that Maul better than anybody. The one thing that you're probably thinking, okay, this movie is lacking some explosions. Well, that's where you get your goddamn explosions, because there's, like, a big set piece where Paul Blard blows up half of the... He severs the gas line in the kitchen, and... Just lets it set ablaze. Yeah, if anybody was doubting Paul Blart at that time in the movie, because of course the audience isn't, but you know, Bobby Cannavale has kind of like been talking trash about him the entire time because he knew him back in high school. But then the explosion happens, and then Cannavale is a believer, and mm-hmm. he just joins the audience in like, you know, being amazed at how awesome Paul Blart is. So then Vec retreats after the explosion back to the office, and it's at this point he's trying to find everything he can about Blart. And he finds his uh, perfectmatch.com profile. And he puts the two and two together and realizes it's his daughter. And threatens Blart and says, you know, I'm, I'm going to take this from you. And, you know, nothing can ignite a man's senses like threatening his daughter. Blart's on a mission at this point. Again, you can just tell, it's another transformation. He just went from being, like, you know, your regular action hero to just, like, the no-nonsense, unstoppable action hero. Except he, that, you know, he does, because it's the third act of the movie, he does get stopped, but that's not entirely his fault. But he, he goes from, like, a John McClane to, like, an Anton Chigar at this point. Yeah, Where yeah, he's yeah, just yeah. a man on a mission. But still, he's Anton Chigar with humanity, and that's really what, what causes him to fail momentarily. Because, you know, he could have just taken his daughter and uh, Amy and gotten out of there, but instead he tries to save everybody. He, you know, he tries to save the the dick from the pen store and then he tries to save like the really fat black guy that likes nachos and then that ultimately causes him to be captured by the main bad guy Mm -hmm. that corners him has a gun drawn on him and Blart almost had it like victory for the meantime slipped through his fingers like he thought he had it literally all these codes, these bank codes and vault codes and everything that Vec was looking for are stored on Blart's phone, the temporary phone that he has. And Blart, like Amy, tries to just say, I don't have it on me. And then, of course, comic relief, Pahood has to blow his cover and call him. Hilarious! Again, okay, you know, because you're so tense, you, you you know, it's a life or death situation that our, our heroes are at the mercy of bad guy, and then, you know... They, it's the perfect comedy to break that exactly. ice. Exactly, the so funny tense. Indian guy comes in and calls him, uh, what's, what's that line? Peanut, blood, and jelly. What, 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 what's up, man? So good to hear your voice. Peanut, blood, and jelly. Yes. Which, we're talking about something so serious here, but a line like that is just... You, you know, know, the script is credited to Kevin James and, like, that other guy. I really hope that whoever came up with that line got, like, a bigger share of, yeah. the, of the profit. Got the first billing. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That Brilliant. Was, that was really so, Vec makes off with the phone, and Blart is on the prowl after him. And it's at this point that the minivan, the object of his demise becomes the object of his resurgence as he just hijacks that minivan and barrels it out of the mall after Vec. Vec is taking not just a coat, but he took uh, his daughter and Amy hostage. Blart. Everything in Blart's life. Yeah, this is, I mean, come on folks, we're reaching the climax here. Everything is, is, is coming to a head. Vic has daughter and Amy and then Paul Blart picks up Bobby Cannavale and, you know, he becomes his co-pilot. The man who once doubted him and once bullied him now has become his his greatest fan and, and, you know, sees him as an asset. And even though Pahood blew his cover a few moments prior, Pahood comes in handy because of that GPS tracking system. Yes, that, that, that gosh darn technology comes to good use. So without Paul Blart ever actually having seen what Pahood's phone number is, he knows enough about it to call him back and ask him 
to track the phone for him. So he... well, let me remind you, this is the guy that memorized that phone, you know, two days ago, and and now and still remembers it like Amy's phone. So of course, all he had to do was glance at Pahood's like phone number once when he was calling, and now he remembers it. Of course. So Pahood's able to help him and track down exactly where the phone is and where it's going. It's going to an airstrip as it's become clear that Vex's plan originally was to get the money and go to the Cayman Islands, but at this point, I think he's just trying to book it. He has the codes and everything. Well, even if he was not able to get the money, I mean, when you look at it, he still has Amy and Paul's daughter. So that's like two things he didn't have before. Mm -hmm. So even if he takes off, he's still, you know, he has a girlfriend and a daughter, I guess, now. I guess, yeah, he can just go to the Cayman Islands and either just raise them as his own family or, or sell them, yeah, sell them <laughs> yeah. or just stay there until they wire him the money proper. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, call, he's calling on the fly. So we get to the airstrip, and before they can even take off, Blart's there, and we get a, a fist fight, as all good action movies have to end with. That is, that's Paul Blart kicking ass. And not just that, not just physically, but then also mentally, because he actually tricks the main bad guy into thinking that he's having another, you know, episode of... That's right, he tricks him into the hypoglycemia attack, and... That, that old trick. The, the, the oldest trick in the book, and Vec falls for it. Blart's up, takes him down, and it's then when Bobby Cannavale comes in to congratulate him. And, you know, this movie gets you one last time. It just, I almost felt like I had to pause the movie to absorb the huge twist that happens then when Bobby Cannavale is, you know, revealed to be part of the bad guys. He's in cahoots with the gay song from Wedding Crashers and... Pulls his gun on Blart. What's gonna happen now? You're, you're still absorbing that when there's yet another twist. <laughs> Bobby Cannavale gets shot. <laughs> Off stage left, Bobby Cannavale is shot... By Chief Brooks from the mall, the the head security officer from the mall, who had apparently taken the gun out of Sergeant Howard's holster. I was holster. about to say, you're skipping one twist. Oh, no, he, <laughs> he took it out of Sergeant Howard's right. holster. The camera first pans to Sergeant Howard. Sergeant Howard. And Sergeant Howard, like, goes back and looks confused because, you know, he didn't shoot. And he realized that he doesn't have his gun on him. And then the camera pans and we pan out to again. a shaky hand Chief Brooks <laughs> yes. with the smoking gun in his hand. That's how you do it. That's how you close an action sequence. From there, it's the morning after. Everyone's getting tended to. And Paul Blart, you know, just walking on the sunset, just battered and bruised. But he sees Amy and he knows he's going to kiss that girl. He doesn't let anybody stop him. He walks in slow motion, bumps into a few people. But then when he finally gets there, there's 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 no more awkwardness. There's no more cutesy stuff. He just goes for it. And then right before he kisses her, though, in a, a Sixth Sense type, uh, an M. Night Shyamalan type moment that would reward you for paying attention, which... Neither you or I, as much as we were, like, missed this part. He remembered that it was Amy's birthday. Yes. It's so rewarding. You know, at some point during the movie, in the middle of all this craziness, you see him stop by a, one of those stands that have birthday cards. Because he's in the middle of getting all this stuff to, to, like, basically pull a home alone on the bad guys and come up with all these, like, different ways of ambushing them. So you're wondering, oh, what's he going to use the birthday cards for? And then you forget about it, and then he comes back at the end. Bam. This is how you close his love story. You remember her birthday. It's a full written out card too. He put I know a whole he note took the time. time. You know he took at least five solid minutes in the minute of like this hostile takeover. If I <laughs> if I could have one gripe with the movie, I think you kind of utilized yours earlier with the the technology flop. If I had one complaint, it's that we saw what he wrote. I would have preferred a much more lost in translation like ending, yes. where yeah. we don't actually see. But but see, Alex, that's the kind of movie that this. It, it, it's not trying to be artsy. It's not trying to be like, oh, like, uh, no, no. This is a movie for the people. 
for you know for those of us who I have guess to work, it's for the working man. Yeah, we have to work Black Friday. We don't want to wonder what he said on the card. We want to know what he said on the card. Uh, yeah, I, I guess that's true. Like I kind of want it to be hidden from me, but at the same time, we deserve to know. Yeah, and, yeah. We've been through this hell with him. You know, let us finish it with him as well. I want to know what he knows. And we fade to black, and you think it's over, but not quite, because it turns out that Amy and Mr. Blart get married. Yes, in the mall. And yeah. they ride segways down the aisle. Yeah, because that's where everything leads, the mall, I'm telling you. <laughs> I was a little troubled by the ending of the movie, like those last scenes of their wedding over the credits, because I have seen the, the Paul Vlar 2 trailer, and I am sad to say that there's no sign of Amy. So I'm afraid that this doesn't bode well for the relationship. I think that there's divorce in the future for Paul Blart, and I hate that, because... He's a good guy. This whole movie is about getting the underdog to a happy ending. And suddenly, I don't know, man. That's why you shouldn't do sequels. <laughs> okay, I'll stop now because it's too depressing. This is for the immediate, though. Yes. For, for the now. You know what? Let's just focus on the now. Yeah. There's no problem. Maybe there's a reasonable explanation why she's not there. There could be. She could be on a business trip. At the beginning of this movie, he had a chubby Hispanic girl for a daughter, and we didn't understand why. So they can explain almost anything. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So we're we ready for some real talk. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, let's do some real talk. <laughs> oh man! T-shirts, t-shirts, t-shirts. Hundreds of thousands of wrestling t-shirts, all for you to buy. Starring all of your favorite wrestlers: Daniel Bryan, Bret Hart goes to Montreal, some dead guy, the Blackjacks, Mulligan and Lanza, not Wyndham and Bradshaw. Wrestling. Smartslikeus.com. 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 Selling you wrestling t-shirts. Also available, buttons, stickers, and kitty cats. Meow. That was, that was a tough one. <laughs> that, that was hard. <laughs> well, let me go back to, to the quotes now to read a quote from one of my heroes, one of my favorite writers, Roger Ebert, who said, Paul Blart Mall Cop is a slapstick comedy with a hero who is a nice guy. I thought that wasn't allowed anymore. He's a single dad bringing up his daughter with the help of his mom. He takes his job seriously. He may be chubby, but he's brave and optimistic. And he's in a PG-rated film with no nudity except for a bra strap and no jokes at all about bodily functions. That was Roger Ebert, and I love him to death, and he's a great writer, or he was a great writer. He is way off on this one. That This movie is terrible, <laughs> and he gave it three stars. I mean, every now and then he'd be weird and just do something like that, but oh man, it's so bad. When we do these like little uh, behind the curtain for those listening, uh, when we do these, we, we take notes and like things to talk about and like points and like ways to spin things to be negative or positive or whatever. After about 40 minutes of this movie, Julio and I both just like put down our pens and paper and we're just like, this is just impossible. Yeah, we're just like, how are we going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, it's just like, those first 40 minutes or so are the hardest. I mean, if you laughed at this movie, you know, God bless you. <laughs> There's something that, that, you know, obviously we don't have in common. But yeah. I just, I did not laugh at all. Like, Alex kept looking at me. He was like, you're not laughing. I was like, there's nothing to laugh at. <laughs> Once it gets into the whole, like, crime part and, you know, this poof an action movie, then, then I started laughing. Not because it was funny, but because it was just so ridiculous. But... It's rough, man. It's it's really, really bad. It's not funny at all. And I'll tell you, I find Kevin James funny. Like, usually, I mean, it just depends. I don't know that... I don't know what his... How he chooses which movies to make. 
You know, and obviously, I mean, he knows he's, what he's doing. He's bros with Adam Sandler. That's part of it, man. Like, right, but this was written by him. I mean, you know, he wrote this with someone else, but he also wrote it. You know, so it's like he had some measure of control over his destiny in this movie. And but it's like that. It's not funny. It's like the Adam Sandler thing too. You know, they're sharp enough to realize this is shit, but there has to be a certain level of condescension in it. I mean, when you look at how much money their movies make, you know, okay, so they know what they're doing. But at the same time, it's like, shouldn't you do better? I mean, don't you have the responsibility to be funnier since you're a funny guy? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe. Funny you bring up money. Uh, well, the joke's on us because Paul Blart 2 is coming, you know, this year. Because, yeah, Paul Blart 1, Paul Blart Mall Cop, was released on January 16th, 2009. Despite its whole premise taking place on Black Friday, they couldn't squeeze it in at any point. So... I guess it was supposed to be a Thanksgiving release, and then they saw it, and were like, ha, oh, this sucks, let's push it to <laughs> yeah. January. And then it did blockbuster numbers in January, so then they're like, hey, let's wait a few years, and then ambush them with a sequel. <laughs> so with a budget of $26 million, its box office reign of terror was $183.3 million. I'll, I'll buy that. I remember that movie being on, on theaters for a long time. It was. But, like, more scary after it went on sale on DVD, Blu-ray, and blah, blah, blah. The total cash-in for Paul Blart Model Cop was $227 million. I wanted to research something while I was watching that. <laughs> so, The Master, a film that came out two years ago and is one of my favorite modern films to be released, made $32 million in the box office. Yeah, this awesome. made almost two hundred million more than that. I don't want to sound elitist, but but it just it does aim for the lowest common denominator. It does. Again, I don't want to like you know give you shit if you like this movie, but I kind of have to. <laughs> which like, like me like not trying to sound elitist, I quote like the master, which is like <laughs> right. this is extremely like, okay, can, can intellectual. Get, like, let's, let's find the middle ground. But yeah. really, when I think about like why was this movie successful at all? And but here's the funny thing: if you look at the and Run Tomatoes, you know it's like yeah, it has like a shit. Like score, like thirty three percent. It's rotten, but then the the score from the uh, from the users, regular users, not not actual movie critics, it's not that high either. So it's like they watched it, they didn't like it, but they still watched it. You know, it's like and they liked enough that we have a sequel. And I guess the real test would be how much money the sequel is gonna get. Yeah, you know, but but, but it's like it's almost like okay. You deserve the sequel, America, because you watched the movie. You gave it all this money. and, and You went and saw it, and you bought... Like Those are the kind of films, too, like... You know people that go to it spend, like, $70 at the concession stand, and fucking, like, it's their whole day, and all this shit. And it's like, lowest common denominator is perfect for what you said, because that's what it is. But again, I mean, I don't want to hold it, uh, you know, against them. It's like, okay, if you're going to... No, like... And you want to have a good time, then that's, <clears throat> that's great. But then, I don't know. I mean, it's like... Why is Hollywood making a sequel? Why is there a sequel? You know, right? But it's because they have a, they believe that the sequel is going to make as much money as the first one. Which you know, you'd be like, oh, but there's no way because everybody that was tricked into watching the first one knows it was terrible. So of course they know that the second one is going to be terrible. That's not true though, because there's a lot of people that will like be like, oh, the movie's fucking hilarious. Okay, so well then that's like fuck those people. Yeah, <laughs> if I you mean. and me like. The thing is, like, people who are going to see this movie aren't smart enough to see that in the first place. And I know. Are you talking about the second one? Or the first yeah. One? The, the, no, the first one too. Like, well, let's no, not. Because true. see, I mean, you told me. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the, the first one looked funny. Yeah, you saw but, the trailer and you thought that the first one could be funny. But still, you know what you're going in for, and like, a lot of people were still like plumb surprised at how funny the first one was. But see, I wouldn't be. I, I don't remember the trailer for the first one. But mind if you, you, if you told me. Listen, if you told me. 
Kevin James is a mall cop that gets trapped into this die-hard kind of situation, I'll be like, okay, that can be a funny movie. It just isn't, because it takes 40 minutes to get to, like, the, the actual movie, and it's just horribly paced. The delivery on most jokes is terrible. The acting is very bad. Bad. I mean, it's the just... plot is horrendous. I was just about to say, we've just started dissecting like the psychology behind the audience of this film. <laughs> we haven't even started talking about how terrible the actual movie is. Right, because here's the thing: the movie's bad. It's I mean, awful. It's like, if you like this movie, I would say go out and like watch other comedies that are better, and yeah. then you'd be like, I'm not even gonna be like, get... yeah, but well, it's not even that thing of like, hey, go watch better movies. It's like you're dumb. If you, like, buy any percentage of this movie. One, they're in a bank when they try to rob stores. They could rob the bank and, like, beat the time. Number two, $30 million in a mall? No. I'm sorry. As someone who's worked in retail and, like, worked around a lot of money and shit, no. There's no fucking mall. Not even the Mall of America has $30 million in it. Number three, if you're making a movie at Black Friday, make it about Black Friday. That is no Black Friday. In the movie, everybody's That like was a slightly busy Friday. Yeah, like, that looked like a, I don't know, that was like a regular Saturday. At the that was a gray Friday. Yeah, that was not, that was the worst Black Friday in the history of Black Fridays. That was not. Because, Number but, four, or C, or whatever the fuck we're on, alright, I'm all for the unconventional love story in a movie. One of my favorite parts about, uh, the Invention of Lying has the love story with Ricky Gervais and I'm blanking on her name. Alias. Alias. Um, Jennifer Garner. Yes. Which is clearly something that's not, you know, conventional or anything like that. But the way the movie portrays it, it makes it believable, and I think that's always interesting when you have these interesting mashups of actors and actresses. There is no scenario in which this Paul Blart character would have a girl anywhere near as hot as the Amy character. Yeah, there's no way. She's she's very attractive. Obviously, she has options. The only thing he has go you know he has going for him is that he's a nice guy. He's not a smooth talker. He doesn't look. I'm sorry, but he's, he's he looks terrible. He's riding this dorky Segway. I mean, there's he has nothing going for him, so it's hard to buy. There's and, someone for everyone, but the way they try to present it in this movie, that's not how fucking real life works. If you believe that, you're fucking right. daft. And then of course I hear like the people that like the movie and they're defending. It. It's like, well, it's a movie, guys. You need to lighten up. Of course he's gonna get the hot girl. Of course, like you know, Black Friday's not gonna be crazy. And of course he's just. You just are overanalyzing. And that's the thing. I wouldn't overanalyze if it was funny, but that's its main problem. It's not funny. No. It was, I, there's a reason why I didn't laugh, you know, for the first half of the movie. And then when I started laughing, it was just out of desperation. Because by then, you know, the movie is just like, I told you, it's, it's beaten us into laughing. Yeah. Then. The thing I jokingly referenced earlier about The Dark Knight Rises, that was like a literal quote you told me about the, the flaming bat signal. It's like, if the movie has you at that point... That movie's good, so you believe it at that point in time. But right. like this is like there's nothing believable about it. No. And then yeah, as we were talking about Pahood, that shit's <laughs> offensive, man. Like and as someone who's been known to make offensive comments a time or two, like that yeah, shit's th- fucking ridiculous. That is a, that is a very they came out guns blazing with the stereotypes <laughs> in this one. <laughs> but again, there's a certain sense of cavalier and understanding that comes with all these fucking Adam Sandler produced movies. He knows that he could take a shit on film and he would still make $100 million. See, it's at this point, though, that I, I feel obligated to mention something that um, our friend Eddie Strait mentioned uh, when he gave me the <laughs> the DVD for this movie <laughs> unopened. And he's right. He said, Kevin James movies, even if they're not very funny, they are good-hearted. 
Whereas, like, the Adam Sandler movies are just mean and cynical. That's true. I don't think that. Pulp Lart, for all its flaws, and there's it's, there's, it's nowhere near close to being a good movie. But you could maybe argue that it has its heart on the right place. You know, where it's like something like Grown Ups, or Grown Ups 2, actually, that's the one I remember the most. It's just, it's just that, Those are, like, literal, like, middle fingers that are just, like, you will pay to see whatever I want to do with my friends. It's almost like a social experiment. It's like, we'll see how far we can take them. That's an amazing way of putting it, but... You know, that also brings in the whole thing with Here Comes the Boom, the Kevin James follow-up to that, which I think is a very fine movie. I liked it a lot. I saw it in theaters, and I was surprised by how much I enjoyed it. And part of that is it's because it's good-hearted. My thing, like, is um, it properly represents the sport of MMA, which really hasn't been done in that many other films, so that that's cool, but... Um, I like King of Queens. I've seen Kevin James stand up. I think he's a funny, likable dude. I think he got lumped in. Like a lot of people say that if Chris Farley had never died, that's the role he'd be in now. Is that's the, kind of sad that yeah. they have to compare him to Chris Farley. But no, I find him funny too. Just not funny in this movie. You know, I just saw him trying to make the material funny, and it's it's weird because he wrote it. But mm. you know, it just it's not the bottom line. Is it's not funny. Bobby Cannavale is funny too. He's a good actor. <laughs> like, right, that's right. a very weird thing. Yeah, there's just so many plot holes, and it's more like we keep straying away from the plot itself because that's not the biggest problem. Is it is how much fucking money it made? Trying to figure out exactly why that is. I mean, yeah, because after a while, it has to be that people were going to see it because somebody told them that it was good and it was worth watching. But again, I will tell you. Okay, I will. I will keep my faith in America. Until I see the numbers for Poblar 2. Because that's the thing. You know, I'm like, fool me once, shame on you. Okay? So, if you somehow spend your hard-earned dollars on Poblar 1 because you, like a lot of people, were fooled into thinking that maybe it was going to be funny because you like Kevin James and the idea sounded funny and maybe the trailer made it sound, you know, look funnier than it is, then, alright, well, you get a pass because once, you know, you get it. But... The second one, there's no reason why you should watch the second one. The only person that is allowed to watch the second one without me giving them shit about it is somebody who hasn't watched the first one. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, eh, well, you know, that's what's playing right now. But it's really, it's... And that is, I mean, just going from the trailer, the second one looks like a train wreck. And again, like, not to retcon my entire being, like, when I saw the trailer for the first one, I thought that looked funny. Because it was Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi, set with like all these like mishaps of him, and you know. Oh, they didn't use uh, Detroit Rock City. No, it was Living on a Prayer, and it was the cliche of hey, they used all the funny things in the trailer. They literally used the three funny things that happened in the movie in the trailer. I I wish I can't. Peanut Blart and Jelly was one of them. I still think that's funny. I'm sorry, that, but I think you are onto something too. By that point in the movie, they've beaten you into submission. Yeah, so you're just like, I'll laugh at anything, just make it end. <laughs> just, just, I don't know. I guess we'll see. And I don't know. I, I had like you know, I, I work at a movie theater for those of you who didn't know, and uh, we have the posters for Poblar Two out in the lobby now. And some guy came up the other day, and he was just like. Uh, buying concessions for it. He was watching a different movie, but then he kind of looked over his shoulder at the poster, and he goes, they're making a mall cop too? And he looked disgusted. And I was like, but are you coming to watch it? <laughs> are you putting on... Are you one of those people that are like, fuck this movie, but I'm going to be there on opening weekend anyway. It's like, you know, you get the movie you deserve. Here's the thing, okay. To boil it down, like, if we get a Poblar 3... Because World War Two made so much money, then it's like fuck you, America. You don't get to complain about this anymore. That's you know you brought it on yourselves. We mentioned it in the first portion. 
Observe and Report is a film you don't care for either. I I do not, but I mean, I, it's, it's also a movie that I will acknowledge is better than Pulp Art. It's the, one of those the weird parallels, things. The parallels are weird, though. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the what the schedule is, what the timeline is. You know, I believe they both came out the same year, but I think the really? thing was like, Observe and Report was filmed a while before it got released, and it was just kind of a mishap that they both came out in oh. close time. So My question is... Is there a good mall cop movie to be made? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I love Observe and Report. Yeah, you way. love Observe and Report. I know. Uh, uh, that's, I, I don't know. I, I guess I haven't delved into the genre. <laughs> you know, well, you've seen them both now. I've so. seen them both, and I'm, I, I wouldn't want to watch either of them again. They're on complete opposite ends of the spectrum, too. Right, but I'll give, like, I mean, well, I guess you could say to both of them that, you know, they both have a vision. Uh, I don't like either of them, but at least I think that Observe Report succeeds in its like vision more than Paul Blart. Because Paul Blart is very clearly trying to be funny, and it isn't. And the thing about Roger Ebert's like, there's not bodily noises or anything. There, there is in several points. I think when film. you like the movie, you just kind of like don't think about those. Because yeah, when he's like trapped in the uh, air vent, right? And there's yeah. like, oh, I forgot to eat lunch or something, and then you can hear his stomach for like. A whole minute going on. It's like my unabashed love of Dark Knight Rises. I'm just like you. Just look. I block so many of the plot holes out of there. I don't know. I mean, Ebert like movies I hate it sometimes. He's still a good writer, but he's way off. I'll give this to Paul Blart. This is the most passionate second half of the (laughs) podcast we've done so far. Dude, I almost forgot. I'm supposed to uh, give a shout out to my friend Caitlin Thompson. It's her birthday. Well, her birthday will be long past by the time this gets posted, but still. I don't know if she likes Kevin James, but I said, hey, I'm going to dedicate the podcast to you. I hope you like Kevin James. And she liked the post, okay. so maybe she likes Kevin James. I don't know. I really hope she doesn't like this movie, though, because that would be disappointing. That's like a deal breaker, like a friendship. A friendship. Like, I guess we're never watching any movies together. <laughs> this film, by the way... Uh, came with a free Cinnabon coupon, so that, that should tell you where you're at right away. I think that you buy the Cinnabon, and then you get the movie as a, you know... Oh, <laughs> as the reward yeah, for the... Yeah, as a reward. Alright, so after that long-winded, pretty much battle cry against the population of America... Yeah, let's calm down. We're actually a lot more laid back than that. Yeah, just please don't give any money to... Don't watch Paul Blair 2. No. Tell Kevin James that, you know, he needs to make better movies, because he can't. He is better than that. Yeah, he is better than that, totally. Just, we need to stop the monster of happy medicine. But that's going to do it for this episode of The Contrarians. Uh, next time we'll see you. It's not going to be one. It's not going to be eight. But it's going to be The Magnificent Seven. Yes. As we will debunk these egregious legends of this film. You know, I look forward to hating it <laughs> when I watch it for the first time. <laughs> For now, it's going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right, you're wrong, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians. On your way out, be sure to swing over to youtube.com backslash Avnio Films 
That's O-V-N-I-O Films. And check out The New Adventures of Baby Jesus, a web series created and written by the Contrarian's very own Julio Oliveira.